Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced in Melbourne, Australia. The podcast is available on the ACAST app, the Apple Podcast Store, or wherever you go to get your podcasts. Or you can get it at the Business Acumen website at www.businessacumen.biz. I am Leon Gettler. My job is to review and monitor the week's news in business, finance and economics. I bring it all to you every week. This is episode number 43 in our series for 2020, and today's date is Friday, November the 27th. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this Allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. And this week, I'll be talking to Mervyn Chang, Head of Market Development at ProCensel Australia. We'll be talking about what industries are affected by robotics. And I'll be talking to Callum Pickering from Indeed about the latest wages growth and unemployment figures. But now, let's talk to Mervyn Chang. Mervyn Chang, if I can ask, what industries are affected by robotics? I think pretty much every industry, if you think about it, um, technology always starts with the home before it hits the corporate. If you think about our experience with Facebook and all that, right? We we have the weekend experience on social media before we actually, a corporate started using things like Slack and Teams now and various social and chatting ways to collaborate. Um, it happened at home before it happened in corporate so it's, it's kind of the same with robotics and ai we have google home we have um alexa we, we have google assist on our phones we use G, you know the gps there's a lot of ai everywhere if you think about bots and how it's 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 no longer just a robot arm that puts a car together i think a lot of people think bots and they automatically think terminator and robot arms um, we've got to expand that understanding 
um, and corporates are actually trying to catch up, if you think about it that way. So are you saying every industry will be affected by Yeah, because if you expand your definition of what that means, you know, like in our, in, 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 in our business, we, we do something um, or we implement or we train bots that are called robotics process automation, RPA. And for, for, for bots at that level, um, they, they mimic keyboard and mouse strokes to help alleviate, um, you know, menial or mundane or brain-numbing brain tasks of copying and pasting spreadsheets or creating uh, letters out of systems and, you know, a lot of swivel chair stuff, right? Copy and paste, moving, cutting, um, and bots can do that. Um, and if you think about any industry, um, that needs a computer to do work um, would have lots of spreadsheets, PDFs, emails to deal with, um, and you already have quite a percentage of that work. Um, you know, a bot can already do it today. So if you think of bots that way and not just robot arms in a production line or AI in a kind of futuristic, predictive super smart Terminator 2 style way, then then pretty much every industry would be impacted by it. Um, we've already got chatbots in a lot of, I guess, the service and retail industry. So it's it's starting to grow and it's starting to actually uh, hit every industry in that sense. So redefinition of what a bot means is the first step, I think, trying to understand what is possible. And a lot of people don't really know that, for example, even RPA exists. I mean, there's been all sorts of predictions that it's going to result in massive job losses, but it will also result in job creation, won't it? Exactly. I mean, if you think all through history, every time there's a uh, change of a you know massive invention, like think trains, you know, think of the time where um, the trains were invented, um, the horses that move people around in, in coaches um, became a thing of the past. Uh, now it becomes a luxury to own horses, <laughs> so it's kind of turned one full circle. Um, they think of photography, for example, you know, when it went from film to digital, a, a lot of loss potentially, because um, um, when it was film, it was very technical, so you lost a lot of technician photographers, uh, but you, you it gave rise to a lot of creativity, because the, the AI, if you think about it, you know, they're smart and intelligent in the way the, the, the computer would work out the lighting um, so there's a lot of intelligence in our smartphones to be able to do that. And it gives us then the ability to create um, the ability with filters and various angles to create new photos that previously in a film wasn't even possible. So it's the same thing with, uh, I think, bots and machine. I, I see it more as um, productivity prosthetics, you know, to help with productivity and creativity to take away the boring bits so that we can actually uh, thrive. And so, yeah, so if you're part of an industry, you, your, your core skill set is to do the boring bits, then I think we, we as employers um, in the industry has a responsibility upskill or change the way they're skilled um, to help in increased productivity. Well, the big question for companies is how do they make the transition? I think, you know, with anything, it would be planning ahead to know that it's coming. Uh, invest in change management. I mean, it's 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 really kind of basic transformation stuff, right? To to understand that there's a new technology, it's potentially disruptive. Uh, to collaborate, um, one of the big issues I see at the moment is that when you're introducing AI and bots into an organization, whose job is it? 
Is it the CIO? Is it the, the, the IT's job? But really, it's a business problem. You're introducing potentially a digital worker. And so is it a HR job um, to upskill and train? Or is it the IT person's job um, to actually implement? And it's not really your standard buy it off the shelf, configure it, program it, and away you go, you know, because it's working alongside a human to increase productivity. So so planning um, collaboration between the business, um, HR, and IT is is uh, one of the key steps, um, you know, for, and, and also to understand where um, these knowledge workers are um, and how they can actually increase their productivity if you take away the borrowing bits um, to be able to plan what that is is quite important to actually changing. I mean, there's still a lot of fear mongering of um, you know losing the people losing jobs. But if you think about how it's trending these days, in fact, we need more productivity with less resources. There's more people coming into our cities. Uh, you know, population increasing. There's more demand on services. Um, your traditional model of hiring a person, giving him a laptop and being more productive is a linear approach to productivity. Um, if we can plan a exponential approach to productivity using digital workforce, um, then I think um, that kind of should be the way to go forward rather than you know fear mongering and kind of saying that, oh, it will replace our jobs. Well, the other issue too is you have an aging population, which is quite critical for this, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. I mean, it, it, in the health sciences side of things, it's quite exciting, in fact, you know, that there's a lot of um, uh, experiments done already of, for example, um, aged care and, um, um, you know, even cancer care, that the specialists are not um, always available to answer all these menial, you know, simple questions. Um, and when you are, I guess, uh, an older person or you have some terminal illness or, or just got news of something bad, you, you have lots of questions. You have a lot of uncertainty. And um, they've already experimented chatbots or you know, just having a, a, a head to be able to talk to or on the iPad to interact with has increased, I think, um, the, 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 the happiness and, and, and all that. Um, and so, again... It's helping the specialist out because you you have scarce resource in that space. Indeed, and and what organisations need to do then is to actually do an audit of the skills they have, the skills they need, and the direction they're heading in. Exactly, and and I think that have, they have absolutely have to start thinking of a digital workforce strategy uh, to see okay how how can we how can this change. Um, the way we would operate in the future. And it, it, it can be, a, I think, um, with the advent of Agile in the recent decade, um, that, that's a good way um, of experimenting. What we would like to say with, with training bots these days, um, it's not a super expensive cost. You know, chatbots are cheap. RPA is not very expensive. Um, but to actually start introducing a bit of it uh, to kind of see how it works, um, to touch, to feel it, um, to experiment with it, um, then, you know, create a bigger plan for it, a more robust roadmap um, for adoption. So you don't have to hypothesize and fear and just audit. You can actually audit and play um, and experiment um, and start using it in one area, you know, have one bot and see how that changes the culture, the 
the, the, the skills needs and so on and move, move on from there. Indeed, and what that means is uh, you're developing a more skilled workforce. Exactly. I think, uh, I think it was Ospost that did that, right? That experimented with some bots um, and eventually the, the, the whole department, they're training their own bots um, and they're just kind of compensating, okay, if the bots can do this now, um, I can do something else. And what, what's the something else that I can do? Oh, I need more skills in more better customer relationship management or more complex case management because all the simple cases are now done by bots. Well, Mervyn Chang, it's been fascinating talking to you and we'll be watching that space with great fascination. Thank you very much for your time. No worries. Thanks Thank for you. the chat. And now let's talk to Indeed Economist Callum Pickering. Well, Callum, we had the unemployment figures and we had the wages figures and the wages figures were the lowest on record. What's your take on that? Yeah, the, the wages data was certainly um, very weak. Uh, it wasn't unexpected, um, but it is still the, the lowest uh, wage growth figures we've seen since at least 1997. That's when the data began. Um, but realistically, based on you know what we understand about wages over previous decades, it's the lowest wage growth we've seen since at least World War II. So that really highlights just how um, dire the situation is for, for many workers across the country in terms of how their salaries are, are increasing. And that really, low wage growth is really a sign that there is a high level of slack across the labour market. It's a high level of unemployment, um, and that means that workers are in a very poor bargaining position right now. We've seen a number of companies uh, freeze wages, at least temporarily. We've seen some enterprise bargaining agreements uh, either delayed or, or coming pretty low. Um, and all of that is contributing to a very low wage growth environment right now. And that's something that's likely to persist uh, for some time to come. The September quarter is supposed to be the strongest for wages growth, and that wasn't the case this time. Well, traditionally it is because it's um, you know the first quarter after the end of the financial year. So that's when all the, the big agreements kick in or your big enterprise bargaining agreements that usually kick in in September and so you usually see really strong gains. Um, so the fact that this result was so weak does highlight you know, the, the big concerns there are for wage growth across the country right now. Which uh, has all sorts of implications for the RBA's uh, uh, inflation threshold. Yeah, that's right. Wages are a big driver of inflation. So the fact that wage growth is as low as it currently is um, is, is one key reason why inflation is as low as it currently is. And the pathway back to the Reserve Bank's inflation target of 2 to 3% uh, really requires much stronger wage growth. And until that stronger wage growth eventuates, the likelihood of the Reserve Bank hitting its target is very low. And uh, the Reserve Bank in its last statement said it could take uh, three years till that happens. And, uh uh, so uh, we're going to have a very long period of low interest rates and uh, low inflation. Yeah, that's right. Um, and the Reserve Bank has tended to be a little bit optimistic with regards to, to wage growth and inflation. So if they say three years, there's a good chance it could be longer than that as well. Well, that brings us to the labour force figures. And unemployment went up a notch from 6.9% to 7%. But there was the addition of many, many jobs, and they were certainly the most hopeful since the start of the pandemic. Yeah, if the, the wage figures were pretty bad, the employment figures were actually surprisingly strong. I think it um, surprised most economists and, and market watchers. Employment increased by 179,000 people in October, and 97,000 of those jobs were, were full-time. And that, that was a good outcome because so far in the economic recovery for Australia, most of the job creation had been of the part-time 
variety. So to see some more full-time jobs was um, a, a really good sign. The unemployment rate increased slightly to 7%, but that's not something that we need to, to worry about. It's mostly been driven by rising participation in the workforce as the economy returns to something that more resembles normal. So the participation rate declined sharply early in the crisis. It fell from 66% to about 62.5%. Um, and it's since recovered. Uh, right now it's at 65.8%. So it's almost back to, to where it was pre-crisis. And when the participation rate is rising, it does tend to put upward pressure on the unemployment rate. And that's what we saw in October, despite those really strong employment gains. So we should focus on the, the 179,000 increase in employment and, and not pay too much attention to that slight increase in the unemployment rate. Uh, nevertheless, uh, there's been since May, there's been about 648,000 jobs added over the past five, uh, five months, but uh, the vast majority of these have been in um, full-time, part-time employment. Yeah, that's right. Um, so despite the fact that full-time employment was really quite strong in October, um, that 97,000 increase, they have accounted for only 17% of the jobs gained um, since, since May. Um, so this economic recovery so far has been largely driven by part-time and casual work. Um, jobs in hospitality and retail and, and sectors like that. Um, but full-time really hasn't recovered that strongly at all. Early in the crisis, um, you know, part-time workers were the hardest hit. Um, but when we look at things in October, the part-time economy is almost back to where it was pre-crisis, whereas the full-time economy has a long way to go. And uh, that does not uh, stand well for... Uh either wages growth or, or the jobs figures generally? It certainly indicates that the, um, the labour market's maybe a little bit weaker than uh, you might think, given where the unemployment rate is. When we, when we think about the recovery, we can't just think about the overall employment figures um, because they are largely being driven by part-time roles. We also need to consider you know, the type of jobs that have been created. So when I'm thinking about the labour market right now, uh, I do look at the unemployment rate, but I'm also interested in measures of underemployment because that captures the fact that so many of these new jobs are created are part-time and that a lot of the people who are taking up these roles may be actually looking for full-time work. I think what we have seen in the recovery thus far is that a lot of formerly full-time jobs have probably transitioned into part-time employment. So workers have gone from maybe working a 35 or 40 hour week to maybe working a 25 or a 30 hour week. And so they've shifted classification from full time to, to part time. And I think the next step for Australia's economic recovery is seeing stronger full time jobs growth. And so I hope that that October figure, that 97,000 increase, is a sign that the Australian recovery is headed into that new phase. But the increase in part-time work would indicate that underemployment remains quite high. It's quite elevated, isn't it? Well, it's still well above where it was pre-crisis. It's at 10.4% um, across the country. Now, that's a little bit better than it was earlier in the crisis. But uh, typically pre-crisis, it was down at around 8%. And before the global financial crisis, it was down at about 6%. So it still has a, a long way to go to get back to those uh, pre-crisis levels. Um, and so when you add the underemployment to the unemployment rate, you, you get a better feel for uh, 
just how um, much labour slack there is across the country. Uh, the underutilisation rate at about 17.5% is incredibly high by historical standards. It's up near where it was um, at the peak of our early 1990s recession. Um, and so we still have a long way to go in order for the labour market to be considered strong. Um, but we're certainly taking steps in the right direction. But the labour market has been held together by JobKeeper and JobSeeker, and the government is tapering that off next year. What impact will that have? Yeah, that's a big uncertainty for the labour market right now. Um, the economy has, to a large degree, been driven um, by JobKeeper and JobSeeker. I mean, that's really the, the only reason the economy was really able to operate for, for much of the last seven months or so. As those policies are tapered off, and that's a process that began at the end of September, um, it will shift the burden of uh, the COVID-19 crisis away from federal and state governments, which are providing all that support, uh, back towards households and businesses that will once again have to stand on their own two feet. And I think that is a transition that will prove disruptive for, for many Australian businesses, particularly smaller businesses, um, that perhaps don't have the, um, the funds to fall back on and have probably been hit a little bit harder by the COVID-19 crisis to begin with. Um, so I think that while the recovery is, is tracking pretty well thus far, I wouldn't be surprised if it, you know, there, there was a few stumbles over the next six months as the, the economy um, transitions away from JobKeeper and JobSeeker. Well, shifting the unemployment rate from 7% to 5% could be difficult. And the RBA indicated that, and they said it could take two to three years. And as you say, they're being optimistic. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it's... You know, the, the jobs growth that we've seen thus far has been the easy part because a lot of that those job gains have been driven by simply reopening the economy. Uh, the pathway from 7% unemployment to 5% unemployment, though, is going to be much more difficult because a lot of those sort of uh, easy job gains have already occurred. Now, we know that, you know, even before the crisis, uh, we were struggling to keep the unemployment rate down at around 5%. It kept um, spiking a little bit higher than that. So we know that this is going to be a, a difficult challenge for the Australian economy. Uh, it might be relatively easy to get from 7 to maybe 6, but 6 to 5 is going to be harder again, and getting it below 5 is going to be incredibly difficult. The reality is COVID-19 is going to linger for some time in terms of its economic impact. And so the Australian economy is going to need considerable support, both fiscally and, and monetarily, um, over the next few years, which is something that, you know, Reserve Bank has, has flagged. They've indicated that rates will remain low for the next uh, three years, at the very least, and it is likely that low rates will remain in place um, even beyond that, um, just because of how difficult getting the unemployment rate down to 5% is. Well, Callum Pickering, those are very sobering words, and uh, thank you very much for your insights. And thank you. So what's happening in the news? Well, the surge in coronavirus is stoking fears of a fresh downturn for the world economy, heaping pressure on central banks and governments to delay aside other concerns and do more to spur demand. Hopes are mounting that COVID-19 vaccines will become available as soon as December, but widespread delivery will take months and infections are rising again in many large economies. Authorities are responding with more restrictions to limit the virus's spread at the price of weaker economic activity. Wall Street economists now say that it wouldn't take much for the US, 
euro area and Japan to each contract again either this quarter or next, just months after they bounced from the deepest recession in generations. Bloomberg Economics' gauges of high-frequency data point to a double-dip downturn. That leaves policymakers hearing calls for more stimulus, even when central banks are already stretched and starting to worry about froth in financial markets. Meantime, politicians from the US to Europe are clashing over just how much they can and should do with fiscal policy. And President-elect Joe Biden has chosen former Federal Reserve Chair Janet Yellen as Treasury Secretary, a historic decision that could make her the first woman to lead the department. Biden has selected a seasoned central banker for the nation's top economic policy job as the coronavirus pandemic threatens another US downturn. In Yellen, Biden is likely to find support from both Wall Street, which feared a more provocative pick such as Senator Elizabeth Warren, and progressives who are concerned he might choose someone too friendly to big banks and the wealthy. Yellen, 74, is widely seen as a politically safe pick for the role, likely to garner support from the Senate Republicans as someone capable of pursuing bipartisan compromise during an otherwise fragile time for the economy. If confirmed by the Senate, Yellen, 74, who as Fed Chair and Deputy Chair steered America through the global financial crisis, will help guide the US economy through a resurgent pandemic that is already causing parts of the nation to resume painful lockdowns. The most immediate challenge would be breaking a logjam on Capitol Hill to deliver economic relief to long and growing unemployment lines. A graduate of Brown and Yale universities, Yellen was also the first woman to serve as Fed Chair after a Senate confirmation in 2014. And the worldwide airline industry will rack up more than $200 billion of losses this year and next before finally regaining cash-positive altitude at the end of 2021, the International Air Transport Association has forecast. The industry will make a net loss this year of US $118.5 billion, that's $162 billion Aussie, and US $38.7 billion in 2021, IOTA said. The 2021 forecast loss is more than twice the previous $15.8 billion estimate in June. And the Victorian government will offer stamp duty discounts and spend close to $50 billion on concessions, subsidies and projects in a bid to get hundreds of thousands of people back to work and breathe new life into a state economy battered and bruised by the coronavirus pandemic. Major initiatives include almost $2 billion for school infrastructure and $1.4 billion to redevelop the South Bank Arts Precinct, including building a new contemporary art gallery. The government has set a goal of creating 200,000 jobs by 2022 and 400,000 by 2025, focusing on those hardest hit by the disruption wrought by COVID-19, including women, young people, older workers and those without formal qualifications. To help it achieve its goal, the government has committed $250 million to subsidise the wages of at least 100,000 workers. At least $150 million of this will go towards employing women, and $50 million of this will support women over the age of 45, in recognition of the additional challenges they face. The government will introduce a tax credit to encourage small and medium businesses to rehire staff, restore hours, or create new jobs. And Treasurer Josh Frydenberg will move to expand the government's business expense tax break, allowing companies with more than $5 billion in turnover to instantly deduct the cost of new capital investments. Companies that make more than $5 billion in revenue, but less than that amount in Australia, will be eligible. That means employers, including Dulux, Boral, Boeing, Brambles, Vizzy, Lion, Coca-Cola, Amatil and GE, will be allowed into the scheme. But businesses including BHP, Rio Tinto, Telstra, West Farmers, oil companies such as Caltex, energy companies such as AGL and Insurance Australia Group are excluded. Business groups had told the Coalition a wider version of the $27 billion policy could add more spark to Australia's post-COVID-19 economic recovery. 
New legislation for the measure to extend the instant asset write-off, a centrepiece of the October federal budget, will introduce an alternative eligibility test. Mr Frydenberg wants to allow firms that are household names and have employed Australian workers for decades into the scheme. The instant 100% write-off for capital expenditure by all but the largest firms is expected to help pull forward some corporate spending and boost cash flow for strong businesses confident enough to invest. Under the change, companies must have less than $5 billion in total statutory and ordinary income in either the 2018-19 or 2019-20 income year and should have invested more than $100 million in tangible depreciating assets between 2016-17 and 2018-19. Businesses with an aggregated turnover of more than $5 billion because of the income of an overseas parent or associate will now be able to qualify. Non-accessible, non-exempt income, such as COVID-19 business support, will be excluded from the new test. And Qantas has resumed 17 flights between Melbourne and Sydney and expects domestic traffic to be back to pre-COVID-19 levels by Christmas. Qantas Chief Executive Alan Joyce said the airline was seeing massive demand already. He said Qantas and Jetstar sold 25,000 seats on the Melbourne to Sydney route in 24 hours. Mr Joyce said he expected to be back to 60% of pre-COVID-19 levels by Christmas and in the new year that would be closer to 100%. He said it had been devastating to see 6,000 staff leave the company during the pandemic and those numbers could still rise. Mr Joyce said that while masks are not mandatory for passengers, he wears the mask when he flies and they're required for Qantas staff. And Qantas CEO Alan Joyce has told Channel 9 that the airline is likely to ask for proof that travellers have been vaccinated against COVID-19 once a vaccine is rolled out. We're looking at changing our terms and conditions to say that for international travellers, we will require proof of vaccination before you can get on the aircraft, he said. But Joyce said it was still unclear whether vaccination would be mandated for domestic air travel. And the Transport Workers Union has lobbed an 11-hour bid to stop Qantas outsourcing around 2,000 domestic ground handling jobs that include baggage handling, cabin services and catering roles. Qantas wants to cut $100 million per year in staffing costs under an outsourcing drive it announced in mid-August. But under its industrial agreements with the TWU, Qantas is required to consider union proposals to keep the jobs in-house. And the iconic Grocom building empire remained on the brink over the weekend with talks to determine its future focus on the appointment of administrators. Industry observers said Melbourne-based quarter of Mentha was most likely to pick up the appointment, but Grocon said it was yes to make a move. Grocon on Friday had indicated that it would put its construction business into administration over the weekend and has not wavered from plans to shift away from legacy building companies founded by Grocon chief Daniel Grollo's grandfather Luigi 73 years ago. The impending collapse will be one of the highest profile casualties of the coronavirus crisis, although Grocon had run into trouble on Queensland projects ahead of the pandemic and had shrunk the size of its building business. And a Sydney hedge fund has collapsed after a cyber attack triggered by a fake Zoom invitation saw its trustee and administrator mistakenly approve $8.7 million in fraudulent invoices. The scam, the latest in a series of strikes by offshore criminal gangs against Australian fund managers, has also ensnared ANZ after the bank failed to stop almost $800,000 being withdrawn from an account linked to the cyber criminals. Levitas Capital, which traded the so-called fear index in the US, was forced to close due to its largest institutional client, Australian Catholic Super, withdrawing its money after the September cyber attack. New South Wales police are investigating the matter as digital crime experts report a spike in attacks on hedge funds and private equity firms this year, as informal checks were weakened due to staff working at home as a result of the pandemic. 
Levitas was one of the almost 2,000 similar hacks over the past five months, according to federal government figures, which show a doubling in this style of attack. The spike in cybercrime has prompted the Australian Federal Police to establish Operation Dollars and team up with law enforcement agencies in Europe, the UK and US to combat what is known as business email compromise. The AFP declined to say who it believed was responsible for the surge in attacks, but cyber experts said a trail of digital crumbs led back to Chinese hackers and Middle Eastern crime gangs. And ASX-listed Bega Cheese looks primed to add yoghurt to its portfolio of products after beating out international dairy giants Saputo and Tanara Capital to the lion dairy and drinks business. The $550 million deal, now in the final stages of negotiation, would be mostly funded by a capital raising of about $400 million, with a balance to be funded by debt. Bega went into a trading halt on Monday pending an announcement about the proposed acquisition and expected capital raising. Bega, Saputo and Tanara were were all in pursuit of Lions Dairy and Drink Division after Saputo pulled out the process last Friday. Saputo's withdrawal opened the door for Bega to enter Lions Data Room over the weekend, giving an access to highly detailed financial information about the business, including significant contracts it has signed. A successful acquisition will see the $1.1 billion company bring a number of major labels, Pura Milk, Dairy Farmers, YoPlay Yogurt, Farmers Union and Daily Juice into its fold. Bega would also take charge of an extensive national cold chain distribution network with a vast number of fridges in service stations and convenience stores under the deal and about a dozen manufacturing sites across Australia. A spokesman for the Australian Competition Consumer Commission said that while no formal review was planned of a bigger bid, it was carefully considering the concerns now being raised by some industry participants. While the regulator has not flagged any any definitive issues with the deal, the Dairy Farmers Milk Cooperative recently said it held concerns about further consolidation in the dairy industry. If Bigger's bid is successful, Bigger would control more than half of dairy processing plants in New South Wales. Lion is owned by the Japanese brewer and food company Kirin, and the business was originally on track to be bought by China Mengu Dairy for $600 million last November, with a deal getting the tick from the competition regulator. However, that deal was abandoned this year after news emerged that Federal Treasurer Josh Frydenberg had told Mengu that the deal was contrary to the national interests. The transaction marks the next stage in Bega's expansion strategy, which has seen the small dairy farmer co-op evolve into a diversified food business. The company bought Mandalas Australia, formerly Kraft Foods Limited, in 2017, giving it access to products such as peanut butter. And Australia's entire financial sector, including the big four banks, major insurers, fund managers and superannuation funds, are calling for an institutionally embedded collective target of net zero greenhouse gas emissions by 2050. The target, which if achieved would end Australia's contribution to global warming by the middle of the century, is one of the central goals of the Australian Sustainable Finance Initiative's completed roadmap, released on Monday. ASFI was launched in early 2019 with the goal of designing a comprehensive blueprint to reshape the financial system to deal with climate change and other sustainability issues. On Monday, it published that roadmap, describing it as a plan for aligning Australia's financial system with a sustainable, resilient and prosperous future for all Australians. The roadmap includes 37 recommendations that seek to embed sustainability concerns in corporate government and regulatory governance structures, build sustainable finance markets and support community resilience through more socially responsible lending practices. Many of the recommendations deal explicitly with climate change, proposing a standardised use of a task force on climate-related financial disclosures for all ASX-listed businesses and any financial institution with turnover of more than $100 million, regular climate change scenario analysis and stress testing, portfolio holdings disclosure and common science-based emissions targets. 
And Australia's biggest brickmaking company, Brickworks, says the government stimulus programs have triggered a jump in demand that has delivered first strong first quarter profits locally. But the relentless second wave of COVID-19 infections have cast fresh uncertainty over its US operations. Managing Director Lindsay Partridge said profits for the group's first quarter, which began in August in the Australian operations, are well ahead of the same time a year ago. The Australian operations are on course for robust trading for the rest of the financial year also, in part because of the wide range of federal and state government stimulus programs. But the situation in the United States, where Brickworks has made three acquisitions in the past two years to build a new avenue of growth, is facing a much tougher time as the US faces a new round of shutdowns and restrictions as COVID-19 infection rates spiral ever higher to beyond 12 million cases. And demand for homewares and furniture during the pandemic has put a rocket under Harvey Norman's pre-tax profits, which soared 160% to $34.1 million in the first four months of 2021. The record-breaking profit growth was underpinned by same-source sales growth of 27.5% and total sales growth of 27.5% from the company-owned stores overseas and franchise stores in Australia in the four and a half months to November 21st. And Australians are expected to spend less on their family and friends this Christmas, with two-thirds saying they will hold out for sales or special deals before parting with their money, according to new retail figures compiled by Monash University researchers. In a special report by the Australian Consumer and Retail Studies node in the Monash Business School, many Aussies who buy gifts for family and friends expect to purchase less for their immediate family, 24%, other relatives, 23%, and friends, 24%. This is because shoppers are unsure whether they'll be able to see their family and friends for Christmas this year due to travel and family gathering restrictions caused by the COVID-19 pandemic. Job losses and cuts to household income will also impact shopper spend, with many expected to be more conservative, 58%, or hold off buying treasured items until they go on sale, or are part of a special deal, 66%. And many small organisations are experiencing the world of e-commerce for the first time this year, having moved online to continue operating the business against the unfolding pandemic. While the move online brings many benefits, including a wider reach and increased revenue, it can present security risks that businesses may not be aware of. Web-based attacks remain in the top five cyber threats for businesses year-on-year, second only to malware threats, according to a recent European report. This trend highlights a need for organisations to be proactive, especially SMEs and startups. Organisations need to understand the risk and invest in relevant security controls to defend against potential highly sophisticated and targeted cyber attacks. While many customers have already begun their Christmas browsing, the busiest online shopping days, Black Friday the 27th of November and Cyber Monday 30th of November, are fast approaching. And that's it for this week. And next week I'll be talking to Andrew Laurie, successful entrepreneur and business coach, who's regularly ranked among the top business coaches in the world. And I'll be talking to Con- Nicholas Gruen about how COVID-19 has affected our clear thinking process as we search for solutions. In the meantime, you can find me on Twitter, talking BizBiz, on Facebook and on LinkedIn. And if you want, leave a comment. Wishing you all a safe and healthy week and looking forward to bringing you Talking Business next week. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. 
Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.